In Sandra Cisneros' latest book, Martita, I Remember You, Martita, Te Recuerdo, Corina, once known to her friends as Pufina, is living her life in Chicago when she finds a letter she'd long forgotten. This and other ephemera of bygone days when she was young, single, and following her dreams to become a writer in Paris lead Corina to respond to her friend Martita through this epistolary work. In it, we learn of the ways in which Corina struggled to find a place to live and to survive inhospitable spaces she once dreamed would be welcoming and grand in the City of Light. While she struggled, moving from one flat to another, counting her pennies, and staving off dangerous situations, it is Martita who remains a constant in her life, someone who speaks the same language and who understands the unspoken code that women find in the most powerful and unforgettable connections they forge, perhaps ever, in their lives. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke to author Sandra Cisneros from her home in San Miguel de Allende about her new book, Martita, I Remember You, Martita, Te Recuerdo. Can you tell us the story about how this book came to be? Yes, I can tell you the story. The story is that um, back in the late 80s, early 90s, probably more like the early 90s when Random House picked up uh, my books and reissued them and uh, nationally, uh, I had the option of writing a book of short stories. And uh, this was one in the collection that was to be called eventually Woman Hollering Creek. And I handed it in, uh, but my editor and my agent both agreed the story wasn't done. And uh, I could see that. The, the story was simply the first part of this book. But it was a story I was very fond of. And uh, I put it away. It's based on my own travels, but not when I was 20. And I was at practically 30, uh, thanks to an NEA grant. It came about uh, after I finished a house on Mongo Street in Greece and I, I had a URL pass and I was traveling around, but at that time there weren't ATM machines. And uh, so my money was, was uh, locked into a, a account that I had stashed away my funds in Greece. Not a lot, but you know, just enough so I could travel. And then there was no way to get my money. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know about wiring. I was very, um, naive about how to transfer money from one country to another. So I was unlimited funds. And everywhere I went, you know, whether it was in Italy or uh, former Yugoslavia, different places that I would meet women, uh, they always took me in. And there were many of them, you know, that I would meet in Spain or uh, France or, or wherever I went. And they were very kind to me and generous. And the women who took me in, uh, unlike the men who took me in, because there were men who took me in also, didn't require anything in, uh, in return for their kindness. And uh, so I wanted to write about all those women and put them all together with my experiences in Paris, which was a great disappointment to me because I expected Paris to be uh, in my mind, like the photographs of Ajay, a photographer who documented disappearing Paris at the end of the previous, in the Belle Epoque, in that mm -hmm. era. And uh, I had had this 
visual of what Paris was going to be like. And imagine my shock when I would see these fast food uh, restaurants on <laughs> these old uh, avenues. And, and so it was a, a shock. And also, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. I look Arab. Uh, so I was treated very badly, except by the people who didn't have anything, you know, the people who work on the metro or the women who come from other countries who spoke languages I could speak. And they were so um, memorable to me that later a, a real letter came from uh, a real Martita. And uh, it sparked this story because by then years had passed and, and I couldn't define what that experience meant to me until I wrote this story. Uh, so I guess the story is a letter never written uh, to all the women, but especially the real Martita, because it's, you know, that she sparked a letter that brought back these emotions that I didn't have words for. And these experiences and these dangerous uh, predicaments that young women get themselves into. And sometimes we don't tell anyone about them because we don't want to seem like we're fools and we don't want to advertise our failures so this was about you know bringing that to the fore and of course you know it it lay dormant since the early 90s uh it was something i i treasured and a story that meant a lot to me but uh, i got swept up into having to deliver a novel and then things happened in my life uh like my father and my mother's death i had to write about that i wanted to write a book of essays and finally i had time to get back to it about four or five years ago. And now that I'm older, I could write the middle and last sections of my story. And I really, you know, there's so many women that uh, are Martita in my life. Some of them are related to me. Some of them are friends. Some of them are people I met in my voyages. Some of them I've never heard from again. And some are very, very close to me even now. So that's the story behind the story. Oh, thanks for sharing all that. Martita is Marta Quiroga Pasco. I love that she has this great name, such a such a real name. And she's a character that is so fully composed that I think of her, you know, as I remember someone from my own long past too, someone who was important to me during those uncertain formative years, short 20s, heading into 30s, those, those were still uncertain, uh, sort of unformed times, very unsettled Especially for times. women, yeah. because you've just spent the past decade from your 20s to your 30s trying to please others. And I think that's the, the most difficult decade because, you know, yeah, adolescence is not exactly a, a bouquet of roses either, but the 20s and 30s is like, you know, you've got these dreams, and you've got things your family wants and your boyfriend or your husband or your brothers or the church or the state all will things on you that you haven't even ever lived a moment in your life where there wasn't someone telling you what a good woman is. You don't even know yourself. <laughs> so you're trying to define that, you know, in that terrible decade of the 20s. I always joke and tell young women, you know, this is going to be the hardest decade when you, when you go into your 20s. But don't worry, it only lasts 10 years. You know, that's so true. I feel like, you know, we come or books come to us when they must or when 
when we're ready for them. Maybe you're the one who said that. Maybe I'm quoting yes, you. That's right. Good books are medicine and they have to come, you know, and be the right prescription. Sometimes books come too late in our lives or too early. I think this one comes with impeccable timing for me for many, many reasons. But I was thinking a little while ago about, well, what if I had come across this story uh, as part of Woman Hollering Creek, say, how would I have received this very story? Um, and maybe it's unfair to, you know, make those deliberations or try to guess or try to just to even imagine it. They come when they must come. Um, and I think, too, about the ways that Corina sort of is here and present now in my life uh, with impeccable timing, too. I wonder if you can talk about Corina uh, Bufina. Yeah, you know, Corina didn't have a name in the beginning. And she was just the I, the autobiographical I character. And uh, eventually, uh, she started just developing her own background and her, even though, you know, she borrowed a lot from mine, but she started saying things that were not autobiographical. And I was really startled, you know, uh, when she took off in that direction, because there's so much of the Chicago part of me. But then, you know, as she, as she developed as a character, uh, she became a composite of other women from Chicago that I know. And, um, you know, I, I, I didn't have a name for her, you know, as I said in the beginning, except for Pufina. And I had to find a name that was uh, close enough to um, Pufina that, that the girls could play. And I thought of a woman whose husband had been a, a mayor of a large city and who had been uh, helped her husband in his political career and then then he just kind of dumped her for like a, you know, model, younger model. And her name was Corina. And uh, people who follow politics will know who I mean. But I admired her. I admire her still. And uh, her name stayed with me as someone who was strong and survived that public humiliation. And as someone who with a lot of integrity and beauty. And uh, I just liked her name. So I, I borrowed it. So Corina, an homage to you. Thank you. Oh, the thing about Corina is that she's trying so mightily to make this path for herself toward her goals. And it's one that others have taken and um, many still take these, you know, these paths toward these goals that they think they must traverse these paths in Paris or in similar places. Corina would like to be a great artist. Um a great artist and start where many other great artists have but um it's not a spoiler i don't think to say that well let, let's just say the road is is paved with <laughs> with many issues and with many obstacles for her it's long it's cold it's inhospitable for the most part except as she recalls her time with with uh martita i think it's easy to to think that nostalgia is coloring her perspective a little bit or that the past is so easy to glorify because of how loaded down with expectation it had been. But I think that to think of this only as this kind of, you know, epistolary retelling that's all imbued with nostalgia is wrong. It just diminishes the importance of 
the story of a friendship. Um, I mean, for me, it's almost a Bildungsroman of, of sorts still. And even if they have not connected in a very long time, there's something so substantive in that absence. In- yeah, and you know, that's that's exactly what I was searching for. Because when I write, I have a question that I'm walking, I'm walking towards the answer. But I don't know the question until I get to the answer. That's always the process for me. You know, it's a very uh, uh, opaque and nebulous path that I'm just intuitively walking towards the answer to a question I don't even know. And then unless I know even less the answer. So uh, for me, it was to try to define why do people enter our lives so briefly sometimes, and yet the emotions we feel for them are so profound and, and last an eternity. And I, I was trying to walk uh, through that uh, and answer that question. Who, who were these women that I met so briefly? Some have, only one has stayed within my life and the rest have you know, disappeared. Uh, but who were they and why are they important to me now as I'm 66? I'm turning 67 this year. You know, why do I remember them so clearly and so profoundly? And I guess the key is why do I have so much love and gratitude for them even now? So um, that, that's what drove me to it. You know, we can love someone even if they're in our lives, you know, for a very brief time and get to know them deeply and share our vulnerabilities and they can be mutual. So I think that that's that's what I was searching for. I, I believe maybe you or, or, or another reader will tell me different because I just wrote the story from mm-hmm. an intuitive place. And it's like dreaming a dream. And you're going to tell me what it meant. I think in our friendship groups where there's a Martita, there's also always a Paola. I, I thought that was so uh, just for me anyway, so resonant. And I know this was true for me in my in my early 20s. So there's this third person who's always kind of there, sometimes not there, but mostly there, who's also a friend, gets to be in the group, but not the most sympathetic or reliable one in the group. But she's important for other reasons too, because I mean, she's sort of like a flat character for our lives. And we, you know, a flat character is necessary for our story to stand up. So well, also to inspire us that there's a, a road I didn't take, yeah. and she's successful. And what did she do that she was able to to uh, garner that success? You know, those those are, uh, you know, they're my, not always the most honorable people, <laughs> but they're the most interesting. <laughs> she is very interesting. I I love this character for many reasons, not just because she reminds me of people that I know. Uh, but she's just so she's just so real. She helps us appreciate the Martitas all the more, I think, also. Yes. Um, yes. I would not conflate Esperanza from House on Mango Street and Corina in this book, but Corina's story shows that she did leave Chicago, did live abroad. And that's a lot for Corina. That's a lot for any one of us, but that's a lot for Corina. I don't... That's a lot of someone coming from a house where, you know, you're, you don't have any relative that ever did that. That's a real kind of gringa thing to do. Yeah. And your family doesn't understand, like, why would you want to go somewhere without your family? 
right? <laughs> yes. That's very shocking for our culture. And, you know, whereas other, other cultures like the white culture would want to send their daughter to travel, you know, and, and see the world. And, but for us, you know, who, who are sometimes we feel we must make that grand tour so that we can become independent women and we can travel fearlessly through the world and we can become artists or, or physicians or whatever we want to become, you know, that's like a rite of passage, but it's not for our culture. And, and maybe for upper class or upper middle class women, but not from the household I came from. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I just think that it, it was a, a huge thing for her. And I don't think of her attempts as failed attempts. I don't consider her anything like a failure. I think of her as complex, intelligent. There, even in her small family going to her job and worrying about her house and, you know, uh, stripping the varnish off the furniture. I mean, I just find her to be so compelling for the for all of those reasons the things that she set about to do that were so grand and the things that she must return to just as a as a matter of you know this is the course of of her life um i've been reading about the life of robert walzer so here's a guy who you know everybody says he wrote small i mean he literally wrote microscripts these you know he wrote tiny uh, tiny, tiny stories uh, across small slips of paper, but there, there could be like 600 words, you know, uh, scrawled on a business card or something. But he was someone who prized small stories. You know, he was, mm. as his biographer says, the clairvoyant of the small. He worked at a mm. bank. He worked uh, in a, an elastics factory, and he put himself through a school for butlers. He could not manage a job while writing but then he would put those jobs to use later by writing about them and he was a champion of ordinary lives he was also someone who walked a lot and talk about conflating I couldn't help but think about this book as I was reading the new biography of Walser and thinking about Martita at the same time and how Somebody like Robert Walser would have been so taken with Corina's story. And I just feel like Corina, I don't consider her anything like someone who didn't achieve her goals. I consider her somebody who authors would want to write about. <laughs> authors like you and authors like, like Walser. Those stories are so important for the smallness. And small doesn't mean trivial or unimportant small means making uh the seemingly ordinary extraordinary as you know yeah i'm thinking of the stories of lucia berlin also yeah. that writes about cleaning women and you know women who are at the laundromat and uh certainly you know when i began this this story began from uh, my own story but it didn't go there because it started changing and i realized i was writing about uh, my relatives who uh, also had big dreams and my students and young mentees who wanted to be writers and all these other women uh, became something else other than what they had aspired to but by no means had a, an uneventful or unsuccessful life it just that it veered into a, a different path than the one that they could see when they were younger and um, I also you know I thought about uh, some of my young mentees who you know sometimes 
uh, took jobs working as saleswomen at a women's department store, but they could talk to you about great works of literature. Uh, sometimes we typecast people by their job and don't realize the richness of their interior lives. So I think that that's, without being aware of it, that's where I went with this story. Something about Martita, I remember you, is the dearth of photos of the three friends together. But that's so real. I'm, this was at a time when we couldn't just pull out our phones and take so many pictures, dozens and dozens of pictures of ourselves. Um, I remember I had one or two, maybe they were Polaroid photos of my Martita, of my my friend who reminds me so much of this character and who remains one of the most important people in my life, even if we don't talk often. And even if there are no photos of us together, you know, from those days in the, in the, uh, in the late eighties. So I think too, about the idea of a, a story like this one that is set at a time when you were talking about the ATM machines there, you know, they were not ubiquitous. Um, We, d we didn't have those sorts of what we think. We don't even think of them as conveniences anymore. We just think of them as just a fact of our lives. So I feel like um, everything is relative. W were those days necessarily more difficult because we didn't have those conveniences, right? But at the same time, I feel like, well, it's, it's also kind of perfect that the photos are so rare. That's also kind of perfect. I, I always am uh, marveling since I live in a tourist town here in San Miguel de Allende, Mexico, how people are always grabbing their phones when they see something memorable instead of putting them down and photographing them with your mind. You know, there's just so many things that happen to us and people are picking up their phones instead of experiencing and savoring the moment, which always to me is hilarious when there are certain things you can't photograph. And that are so sacred that even if you photograph them, you will fail mis miserably in getting the power and sensation uh, of the object that you're viewing. Uh, so sometimes, you know, even though we have a phone, there's sometimes when you, you should put your phone down and really just take a picture with your heart and your mind and your presence. Uh, and I, I hope I did that with these characters, you know, that I, I wrote about you know, I did have a couple of women friends uh, when I was in Paris, but the, the story is really a composite of women I met in different countries, not just Paris. And they told me so many incredible stories. You know, some of them uh, were older than me, some were younger. And a lot of the stories are in the book, you know, of how they managed to get to Paris, the sleeping arrangements, you know, the things that happened to them. You know, women tell each other, Uh, their failures it, it, when they get very close, not just the great things, but that's the, I think maybe the mark of a friendship is that you can expose yourself at your most ridiculous and vulnerable. And uh, I was always just uh, heartbroken is the word maybe, when I would hear these stories of these women and it made me want to rescue them in some way. And, you know, I came home from this trip with so many people I met and so many stories, but nobody wanted to hear them. You know, when you come back from a trip, it's like trying to share home movies. Nobody wants to see them <laughs> and everybody's too busy. So, um, you know, they would ask, how was your trip? And I'd say, oh, let me tell you, that's good. 
you know, and then I think, what do I do with all these stories? I don't have children. What do I do with these incredible things? I witnessed the things people told me. I'm still haunted by them all these years later. And so writing about it for me was a way to honor these women and their lives and their, their foibles and their survival skills. And also to record my own foibles, you know, and uh, to look at them from this perspective and say, all those mistakes, how important they were in my life. They brought me to who I am now. Corina is a great reader. I love this about this character. Your reading life is so important to you too. Um, I just read that piece in the uh, in the New York Times about um, your reading life. It's it's just incredible. I was jotting down titles and names of authors, and I have heard you say, even in this conversation, that books are medicine. Right, but unfortunately, sometimes we're forced to to take someone else's medicine and, and it just makes us sick. <laughs> We're required to take someone else's prescription. I, I'm always suspicious when anthologies say the 20 best American <laughs> stories. So, you know, your best, they're not mine. And, you know, I, that's fine to take a look at someone else's prescription and see if there's something there that might nourish you but it can also be very damaging and i think we turn a lot of young people off to reading because they're not ready for the the books we give them mm-hmm. we should give them a wider uh menu you know that be more inclusive and more representational of all the genres and all the cultures of the world but it, it does go back to this idea that we we each have to come to these things or the books will come to us when they have to um, I believe in that too. Yes, but it's always good to have some guide there to put some on a tray so we yeah. could select the one we want. Because if, if no one's offering them to us, as happens in Mexico, in the culture that I'm growing up into now, these, these years now that I see how young women and young people have no exposure to books. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, very sad. You know, I, I pass young girls who the only thing they know how to do is to sell nopalitos and tortillas from a bucket and they they never owned a book they don't have books and there isn't a culture even with people who have money of reading there isn't that culture especially not in the smaller towns and in the countryside forget about it books are very expensive uh there there is a there are book programs for very select uh small a community of people in Mexico City, perhaps, or university students, but we don't have a, a way of introducing books to the community. Instead, the government gives away television sets or, you know, television sets instead of books, which to me doesn't make any sense at all. So there isn't that investment in libraries or that access to free books that we, we take for granted in the United States. Yeah, I think the access part is the most important because then, as you say, people feel like they have a choice, like they they will come to the to the things that they must read or or want to read, um, and that goes too to this idea of this idea of access. I I said in an interview with um, uh, with John Freeman that 
uh, I had considered at one time that if I had read um, your books earlier in my life, uh, I graduated from high school in 1984, which is when The House on Mongo Street was first published. I, and I said to him, I, I think my life would have been very different if I had had access to that book at that time. Um, and it's just, it's such an interesting idea to me um, as you as you have done so much outreach with young people, um, visiting classrooms and talking to young people who can then turn around and see uh, a woman of, of color uh, who is an American writer, who has traveled the world, who lives in Mexico and who writes these stories. And so, so that life becomes uh, a place with more possibilities for somebody. Um, and we don't limit ourselves just because we think we have to or we think that that's going to be our story or our path. Um, so I also I feel like that question of access is also uh, related to representation and what what is out there for us to be able to access to read. And you know that you're making me think also uh, I'm having this conversation via email with a colleague of mine from Chicago, Chicago poet, Carlos Compian, who and I go back all the way, you know, from when I was 19 and uh, met, and we've always been friends. And he was sending me um, book covers of writers who are invisible Chicana writers that nobody knows about, or lat invisible slash Chicana Latina writers. And uh, I was sending him some of mine, you know, writers that I respect who, maybe only had one little chapbook and great writing, uh, maybe some stronger than others, but all the same, you know, they made the book, but where are they now? You know, uh, um, you know, they were alongside me when I was coming up in, in the 70s and 80s. And uh, it made me wonder, what are they doing now? And uh, do they still write? And uh, why can't we... Um, support those writers or let's write an article about these invisible women writers who wrote one chapbook mm -hmm. a lot of them through small presses um, that are defunct now didn't have the distribution or power of a big new york publishing house and maybe that's why you know how maconda was created you know the, my workshop i just feel that there's a lot of good writers out there but they need their connection with other writers to keep going because in everyday life, you know, you, you're so distracted by having to go buy kitty litter or make a meal. And it's so good to have other people that are your spiritual kin, mm -hmm. know what it takes to get a manuscript done and who help you to get to the next point. So to me, you know, that that's what I always felt I needed because my own family, they couldn't help me they might have been happier if I hadn't taken this route. It has separated me from them. It has caused me to run away from Chicago and look for my home in South Texas and then further south in Mexico. Because as a writer, it, you know, writing career is, is so anathema to uh, what a perfect Mexican daughter, borrowing from Erica Sanchez, what a perfect Mexican daughter is supposed to be in a traditional family. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't find those models in my family or my community. So I had to run away from home, make my own family. And that's what my writing workshop community did for me. Just I, I have those network of friends who understand, okay, I've got a new book. 
look at every page and know that every page took at least a whole day of my life. So count how many pages there are and multiply it by the years. And you understand why I have been interned in this convent hmm. called writing. How did the writing go in San Miguel de Allende through the, uh, the pandemic that started in the spring of 2020? Well, I'm a little ashamed to say that I flourished being home alone because I'm called out to be a speaker so much. And I felt obliged to accept invitations during the last uh, administration, maybe during every administration. And, um, uh, you know, speaking to me was a way of, of uh, uplifting community in the same way that uh, sermons uplift a community. So I felt my lectures were, were of a spiritual ministry but being able to stay home uh, without, uh, with impunity allowed me to finish Martita. I just finished a book of poetry uh, two weeks ago. It'll be out next fall. I've been working on the new translation with Fernando Melchor of La Casa Mango Street. And I've been working with Derek Baromel on the uh, House of Mango Street, the opera. So I've been getting a lot of work mm -hmm. done. That's incredible. Well, you say something that reminds me of one more question about the Spanish, that this is a, a bilingual, this is a, a two-language book, uh, Martita Te Recuerdo. Why was it important for you to make sure well, to have this in Spanish? I have to uh, acknowledge Liliana Valenzuela, the poet and story writer that has worked with me and has been my friend for over 30 years. And uh, she and I, you know, have collaborated on many, many of my my books, not all, but practically all. Uh, and she's a Texan, you know, she's a Tex-Mex, Mexicana who went to Texas and migrated in the opposite direction than I did. Uh, I, as I told Liliana, you know, uh, it's so important for this to be in Spanish because in real life, Martita was from Buenos Aires. So she was talking to me in Spanish and the story was always Martita Te Recuerdo since the beginning. It's always been in Spanish. Even the title, even though I wrote it, it was always Martita Te Recuerdo. I could hear Martita speaking Spanish and to have Liliana uh, translated back into the way I heard her in my head seemed right. Uh, I was very lucky that my publishing house this time allowed the Spanish translation to be under one cover. You flip it over and it's in Spanish. And uh, I was obliged, however, to change my title to an English title, but that wasn't an issue because I could just flip it over and there it is and the way I hear it in my mind. Well, it, it's so perfect. To, and I keep thinking about the way that Martita, being from Buenos Aires, she had has this kind of worldliness uh, there in, in Paris, but she is she's somebody that can be a sort of a go-between for for Corina in a certain way that um, that I, that it, that is so for me I think it's it's so Argentine I don't know it's just so so <laughs> kind of perfect so I can imagine that that would have been uh, in your mind in Spanish that's so lovely well I think um, you know when you're traveling in a country where you don't speak the language you 
try to find a community that speaks a common language. And that certainly was true for me when I was traveling. If I, if I couldn't find people who spoke English, I felt maybe more at home when I found people who spoke Spanish, even if it wasn't the Spanish I grew up with. It was still a homecoming in a way. And that reminds me, I did the audiobook uh, for the first time. I've recorded the, for the very first time in my life, I've recorded the Spanish version of my own story. I usually record all the English, but this is the first time I've done the English and the Spanish. Oh. So um, I hope people will take a listen. Uh, I'm so excited by the audio version. Um, I did a lot of practicing and I hope people will uh, be inspired to maybe take Martita where I think she belongs on the stage. Because after I performed it, I thought, I thought this is the right length for a performance. It's only three women characters and one male character that can play all the male parts. So it's, it's, and it's the right length for someone to sit and then get up and after having heard the whole thing. It's just the right size. You know, I, in my own circle of uh, friends who are big readers, there's such an energy right now about this this book about we've got to read this book we've got to we've got this is a very different kind of Sandra Cisneros book what is for those who have not yet read it uh how to explain this energy I understand it of course but what can what do you think what do you surmise when you hear somebody say that oh my gosh we're all so excited we can't wait we're all following you on Instagram (laughs) we can't wait one more second what do you think it is what is different you're asking about this book yeah well i think um i really feel the writing is so much stronger because this is like a a a bottle of wine that i put in the cellar for so many years and then brought out and reworked and worked and worked and you know it's a lot of rewriting as you know the task of writing but over you know i i wrote it 30 years ago bring it back out. And I feel I'm at the height of my literary powers here. So I could do something that I'd done as a young girl, you know, had to have the poetry and the succinctness of House on Mongo Street. But uh, when I experimented with a larger book in Caramelo, I could create these density of characters that I wasn't able to do when I was a young woman. And now, as I'm uh, uh, elder, I'm able to gather the succinctness of house with the density of Caramelo and create this small little story that's a a whole universe. And that's what I feel I did. And I I feel uh, a great pride in how I was able to work this. And not by myself, of course. I had my friend Dennis Mathis and my editor Robin Desser helping me along because by then, by the end, it's like a triathlon. You've got to have somebody there cheering you, have throwing water on you, fanning <laughs> you if you faint. So, you know, by the end, you can't go on anymore. And, and you really do need your, your support team. Um, but I tried to expand it and make it a, a you know, full length novel because that's what publishing houses want. And, uh, you know, like all my work, this wanted to be what it wanted to be and it, it evolved. And I don't know what to call it. People are calling it a novella. Uh, it's a long, short story, which is kind of oxymoron. Uh, I don't know what it is. It's between genres, again, like many of my works are. And uh, I just know it wanted to be this length uh, and not shorter, not longer. 
And uh, I just think it's the right length to perform, to hear it out loud, to perform it. And my works are always meant to be read out loud. So do take a listen to the audio. Well, it sounds like that process was total alchemy. Sandra Cisneros, thank you so much for talking to me today. Such a pleasure to get to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, lovely Yvette. I always enjoy things you have to say in about literature and your profound questions that only another writer could ask. Mil gracias. Sandra Cisneros is the author of Martita, I Remember You, Martita, Te Recuerdo. Liliana Valenzuela is the translator of this story in Spanish. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rizzotti composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.